0: This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 11th of May 2022 at home in Wicklow and it was recorded in a hurry because I was on the clock but it is essentially a reflection on heroes and heroes in fiction and specifically in my case heroes from the movies and the co- and comic books and i discuss in this episode the desire to consume heroes and what the implications are of that and what heroism might be and whether heroism is a particularly useful word to use or whether it's infantilizing to those of us who have a relationship with fictional heroes and I look at the original Star Wars movies and that world and I also look at Batman the creation from the comic books the graphic novels the TV series and the the movies and most recently uh, earlier this year uh, the Matt Reeves movie The Batman and I look at how my daughter deals with disappointment, and I somehow find a connection between that idea of being disappointed in life, and then seeking positive compensation elsewhere. I think that's kind of the the main idea. So, yeah. So that's what com- that's what's coming up in 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 this episode. Um, and it's uh, also a, a musical outing That sort of prompted a lot of this thinking as well So um, get into it Get into it uh, And I'll see you there Right around the corner Cheers, bye Hi, my name is Dara Clear And you're listening to The Clear Out Welcome to it Welcome to episode 51 of this podcast which is dedicated to explorations of wellness explorations of coping mechanisms explorations of how we do this thing called life and the methods the the tools that are used for this ongoing exploration are tools like storytelling, um, confessional storytelling, movies, sport, martial arts, philosophy, psychology, and anything else I can throw in the bag. So, so there you go. Now, today's episode, I'm very much, very much on the clock. I've got a, I've got a timer on, so this, this will be a, a shorter episode to follow last week's epic um last week's epic which was a look at puritanism and conscience and conscience as a tool of defiance as a tool of righteous identity claiming in the face of puritanical persecution and i used arthur miller's the crucible as a case study uh, and also Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards and the the backdrop of World War 2 and the persecution of the Jews in that conflict and the Holocaust and you know the the illusion of racial superiority this week nothing quite so heavy and the reason for that is I don't I don't have a plan because it's just been busy, it's been busy and the, the planning time has been stolen away, stolen away by the passage of time and here I find myself sitting down <laughs> in this tiny window to record. However, as always, it's not like there aren't thoughts swimming around my capacious noggin. It's not like there aren't notions knocking on the door It's not like there aren't concepts butting up against one another, vying for my attention so I can attempt to clarify them. And let's not forget that that is very much part of the mission statement here at the Clear Out. To declutter, to clarify, to connect. I mean, everything I do here is ultimately an attempt at joined up thinking connecting the dots of of varied and discrete thoughts and seeing where they connect and where they meet and this is this is a lifelong habit and maybe it's maybe it's a a juvenile lens through which i view things but it started it started long ago long Long ago, in a galaxy far away, <laughs> I want to come back to that galaxy far far away um, I'm probably misquoting that, but that's meant to be a star wars reference the The scrolling opening um you know establishing information for the Star Wars world that scrolled upwards from south to north on the screen before the first star Wars. Uh, movie began all those years ago in 1977 I'm going to return to that for a very specific reason which I'll I'll share with you shortly but um, yeah I was just recalling that when I was (laughs) when I was an undergraduate uh, in Maynooth University St. Patrick's College Maynooth University um, 30, 30 odd years ago They were 30 very odd years. 30 unusual years ago when I was studying... There's that bloody rooster. When I was studying... (laughs) There's that bloody rooster crowing on the fence. Get off the fence, rooster. Get off the fence. Take a position. I was studying English literature and philosophy and for my for my thesis for my uh for my 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 my, you know, my my graduation for my you know to complete my degree in philosophy my thesis was fundamentally the first probably official record of a little bit of joined up thinking and as I said, my disclaimer before, maybe it was a bit a bit simplistic. But my thesis was fundamentally about how um, Plato and Nietzsche had some common ground. And I did a thesis on <laughs> basically a, a platonic Nietzschean affinity where they both had ideas around... Um, Nietzsche had the ubermensch, the superman rising above the crowd, rising above the sort of torment of eternal recurring existence. And Nietzsche had the the philosopher king idea, the the man rising up above the crowd um, through contemplation of... Platonic forms, the the realm of forms. I, I spoke about this in a in an earlier episode. How Plato conceived of a metaphysical realm, a realm, a, a domain beyond what we can see here on Earth, where there existed an ideal version of everything that we saw in the world, an ideal, perfect representation of anything that we could find in the real world in the the mortal material world and so everything in the the in the the material world was but uh, a facsimile uh, a shadow a reflection a copy an imitation a knockoff and so in the material world where we're only ever eating junk food in a way, spiritual junk food, and the way to elevate ourselves and reach higher understanding is to reflect on the forms. That rooster is going to drive me demented. But as I as I was saying to uh, my Tai Chi students earlier today, the rooster doesn't realize he's only one axe chop from the pot. I don't know if you'd eat a rooster that's been knocking around. Would, would you? Would you eat a rooster that you had on your? on your hands for a while yeah anyway maybe he'll shut up so in any case the point i'm trying to make is the connected thinking was there at a a relatively young age um yeah and so more more of the same has has persisted through the years and that's what you get listened to here every week on the clear out if you're a if you're a regular listener um maybe you're an irregular listener an irregular listener who frequented the odd years the years of oddness and irregularity so i mentioned i mentioned the star wars opening not opening credits but that scroll of world building information the famous south to north scroll that went up upwards on your screen and in fact you know what i'm going to cheat i'm going to cheat and bring up the the um the words so i can actually quote them properly and there it is it's a long time ago in a galaxy far Far away. Yeah, that's it. And then it goes on and on about the rebels and the empire. And then you have that amazing, and it's still very effective because I, I rewatched the movie last week again for a reason. Uh, that amazing opening shot of a rebel spaceship in space flying from north to south across the screen. And you're like, oh cool, that's a great spaceship. And you hear the sound of gunfire. And then an enormous spaceship follows it in pursuit and completely takes over the screen. And it's an Imperial um an Imperial Star Destroyer, is that what it's called. I'd have to go back and check my um check my Star Wars uh lingo and vocabulary. Um and go to a star wars glossary but anyway uh a star destroyer death destroyer can't remember but a triangular shaped massive spaceship in pursuit and there's a planet in the distance and so it was just it's it's a very brilliant effect and sets the sort of scale and brings us into the world of star wars right off the bat it's just it's a brilliant brilliant movie opening iconic now why am i mentioning it i'm mentioning it because last week my wife and my daughter and myself we went to the national concert hall in dublin to listen to a concert of the music of star wars composed by john williams the legendary film composer who also composed music to many many other iconic films films that was very 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 Irish pronunciation there it was a great film I really really enjoyed it and I do love the Star Wars I've always loved the Star Wars and another movie where John Williams did the music was uh, did you ever see The Jaws The Jaws and he also did The Superman that can be a habit do you know that that can be a little habit to stick the old the in front of, in front of a movie title, where it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> in any case, John Williams, Jaws, Superman, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Um, he probably did Close Encounters as well. I shouldn't be surprised. Um, John Williams scores everywhere, and you know, you have you have the you know again if you watch Star Wars movies as if you're a if you're a man if you're a man of my age um you know a gen x uh male um someone who was growing up in the seventies and eighties and you liked movies and you were alive to pop culture in a way you can't not have uh consumed or been indoctrinated into the world of star wars to some degree and i was a i was a huge fan And so you'll know, you'll know some of that music, you'll know some of the famous themes. But this concert we went to last week, it played music across the, from across the nine canonical Star Wars films. So if that doesn't mean anything to you, if I say that, I'll try to explain it very simply. So George Lucas was the the writer and director and creator of the world of Star Wars. He envisaged and created this world um, of kind of interplanetary warfare and uh, you know different sides of the conflict and this mystical energy called the force and the sort of advocates um, advocates and practitioners of the force were these samurai like extremely disciplined noble warriors called jedis or jedi knights And the Jedi seemed to represent, you know, harmony with the world and the universe and nature. And they seemed to represent diversity and inclusion. And then on the other side of the conflict were the Imperial forces, the forces of the Emperor. And they were all, of course, about conquest and subjectification and destroying planets and cultures and bringing everyone to yoke at the heel of the empire's boot and the emperor's chief uh force warrior uh is was darth vader a lapsed jedi knight who fell to the dark side of the force now Lucas conceived this huge world in, in, you know, in a way a bit like J.R.R. R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, a sole creator of a world with its own culture, its own language. And I mean, plural cultures, languages, breeds, species, conflicts, histories, legacies, lineages. Um, you know, he, you know a huge feat of fictional creation and when George Lucas eventually produced his first Star Wars movie it's called if you go back and you know again if you're uninitiated it's called episode four a new hope and so nothing had preceded it <laughs> so you're going what the hell are you talking about how is this episode four a new hope What you know what was the old hope what happened to the hope the pre-existing hope and where were the first three chapters um but George Lucas clearly had a great instinct to go no this is where we should start with this this stage of the story this stage of the this kind of epic story that I've conceived and so we pick it up with a very interesting band of heroes this ragtag bunch uh, who take on the might of the Empire and triumph in their this first installment that we were exposed to back in 1977. And what followed were two sequels to that first film. So you had episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, and episode six, The Return of the Jedi. And it brought the, the hero journey of it, the young Luke Skywalker to a very natural conclusion where he returns in the third part of the trilogy as a, an accomplished and highly competent Jedi Knight and leads this last phase of the resistance, the rebellion. Um, and then many, many years later, George Lucas went, it's time to show the first three chapters and they were far less successful in terms of their storytelling and in terms of the characters that they introduced and those first three chapters you know introduced us to the the young Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker and again sorry I'm not here to break down the entire um story of Star Wars. So there were those next three movies which told the story of what it led up to the 1977 movie. And then in recent years, we had another trilogy of films, which picked up many years after the original third part that we saw in whatever that was, 83, I think it was, *The Return of the Jedi. And so we finally got uh, chapters 7, 8, 9. Now, that's the nine canonical Star Wars films. And there's a through line with certain characters that connect all nine movies. Also, there were a couple of other tangentially connected stories. There was a Han Solo movie from a couple of years ago that wasn't loved by critics. I quite liked it. Uh, And then there was a a one called Rogue One, which connects to the very first Star Wars movie we were given. But they are not considered strictly canon because they exist discreetly and separately from the worlds and the characters that we met um, in the original movies. So all of that is a very long-winded way of saying last Wednesday, when my wife and daughter and I went to the National Concert Hall, we heard the music from those nine movies, the nine movies that comprised the three connected trilogies. And first things first, the music was absolutely phenomenal. And you're, you're hearing it differently. To hear it in isolation, away from the images of the movies, and to see the orchestra perform it, Um, was just an opportunity to appreciate the brilliance of the composer and how nuanced much of the music is and how textured and layered and how he uses every part of the orchestra to bring out different notes and flavours and different characters and different themes and I just found myself marvelling at the the musical achievement. Um, And it was brilliantly conducted by an English conductor who joyously, (laughs) joyously emerged at the opening of the concert. Uh, he, He emerged in full Darth Vader costume and the response was just electric. I mean, people went crazy. And there was just this exhilaration through the 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 concert hall, and just a great a, you know a palpable sense of excitement and affection and love and nostalgia for the star wars world, and an evident and much appreciated sense of humor on the part of the conductor um and he launched straight into the 20th century fox um, theme music that you know percussive fanfare uh, with the spotlights that you can so, you know, you'll you'll probably easily bring to mind if you think of any uh, 20th century fox movie from uh you know from the many years that it was there at the start of those any any 20th century fox production and he went from that into the opening theme music of Star Wars which is the, the iconic um, piece of music that was just so thrilling as a child uh, who was a fan of Star Wars to hear and hear. <laughs> here's, here's my confession. When that music started last week and it, 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 it's a week ago today that we were there I swear to God I nearly burst into tears i was so overwhelmed by the the assault of emotion that i felt the thrill of hearing that music live the enormity of the sound and the (laughs) what it triggered in me the you know i was immediately reverted to my my childhood and my adoration of those movies and those characters and I've probably spent you know a full minute or a minute and a half just <laughs> just struggling to compose myself because I was about to start sobbing it was ridiculous and pathetic and kind of beautiful as well and I couldn't I didn't dare look at my wife or daughter Um, It was, oh my goodness It was just Yeah, it was a mental Mental moment And then I kind of I got it together And I was kind of I was just kind of a bit stunned By the, you know The depth of emotion I just felt And just about managed to uh, Suppress and get under control And that was it I was in I was like, you know I was sold And like, yeah This is going to be great I'm fully committed um, at the interval, my wife said, "Yeah, I was very." She said, "She was very aware that I was having a moment." Um, and God knows, I mean, I I have no idea, you know, what, what anybody else was experiencing. Um, at the concert, I'd like to think I wasn't alone. Um, but you know, I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe other people have been to that kind of event before. I know that that's you know it's very established now, and of course, uh the concert took place on May the 4th and I don't know when it became established, but May the 4th is like international star Wars day because the, the blessing that the, the Jedis and those who believe in the positive side of the force, uh, would, um, say, um, our dispense is may the force be with you. And so may the fourth be with you. Um, So it was absolutely fantastic. We had a great night. And when I say we, I mean me and my wife and that conductor and many, many appreciative members in that audience. And I can't include our daughter (laughs) because she just found it all a bit too much and uh, was kind of overwhelmed and highly irritated and uncomfortable and pissed off basically and spent most of the concert sulking and I kind of cajoled her with a soft drink and a snack uh, at the interval and persuaded her to stay but fundamentally about 15 or 20 minutes in she leaned into me and said I've had enough and I was like no you haven't you're gonna sit there you're gonna enjoy this I was trying to kind of drop in Oh, you know this piece of music happens there, or do you know that John Williams also did the music for ET, which you've seen, and Superman, which you've seen? You know the chickens are on the chickens are on parade outside here. Can you hear that? That's what I have to deal with here. I have to deal with this chicken nonsense. And it's, oh my God! I tell you what, your days are numbered, chickens. Anyway um, So there you go But we got there in the end And it was a lovely A lovely Family night out And a great memory And I have a I have a friend out there Who listens to the podcast On occasion He's one of He's one of many Daves I've got quite a few friends Called Dave And this particular Dave Has advocated for a long time The making of memories And That was definitely A memory And a great one and you know what? I'm just going to take the liberty of utilising the technology at my disposal so I can go out and kill some chickens. I'll be right back. I'm back. I ended up not having to go because the chickens stopped the second I pressed pause. Isn't that amazing? So maybe the chickens, maybe they've got some technology and they're spying on me and they know they know when their chicken days are numbered. They literally stopped the second I pressed pause in the recording there. And now, can you hear that? Nothing. That's not dead air. That's beautiful silence. Fantastic. Anyway, there you go. So, interestingly to me, I was thinking about... I was thinking about um, about heroes, I suppose and heroes as a response no, not, not the creation of heroes because heroes have been depicted in storytelling for centuries and going back in many, many different cultures storytelling and myth-making you know, origin myths, creation myths often feature heroes Um you know, in in many different guises, and I think I think in an, you know I think in the future I'll dedicate uh, a much more comprehensive episode to maybe looking at some of those myths and origin stories um, around kind of you know heroic archetypes. Uh, I mean, and in particular with reference to to Joseph Campbell's work, um, who's one of the kind of great. Um, writers who looked at hero journeys and hero myths and there's probably a place to incorporate Jungian thinking in there as well with archetypes and shadow sides Um, and I know Joseph Campbell was uh, a massive fan I suppose uh, of psychoanalysis and the psychoanalytical way of understanding um, people and and storytelling and the ways in which we protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from the harder realities of life and the way we, I mean, and this, this, this harks back a little bit to last week's episode, because Freud got a mention towards the end of last week's episode with his thoughts on conscience and conscience as a suppressor in a way of innate transgressive desires that we feel. Um, but if you want to get my thinking on that, go back and listen to last week's episode. That was episode 50. Um, so, yeah, I think, in, in you know, in a future episode, I might go deeper into the in, into the weeds down, you know, further down the rabbit hole of of heroic, um, heroic psychology and heroic literature and heroic myth making and heroism and. Um, and heroic archetypes um, as part of our psychological framework. Um, But today, uh, I was thinking more about what attracts us to heroes, what attracts people to heroes, what attracts children to heroes. So as the consumers of heroic tales, what you know what, what are we seeking you know what itch are we trying to scratch and where does it sit into how we build our own worlds and where does it sit in in how we sort of conceive of what's possible in the world and what's possible in people And I've been reflecting on this, you know, for a couple of different reasons. Um, And, you know, my daughter's going to feature in in the thinking around this, but also revisiting my own relationship with um, heroic depictions or depictions of heroes or heroic characters, particularly in movies. Um, And I think, I mean, you know, certain characters just jump into my head straight away and i can without hesitation i can go back to star wars and go you know luke skywalker and han solo as portrayed by mark hamill and harrison ford like they were really at the top of my movie heroes as a kid and then harrison ford evolved into indiana jones um in the Spielberg movies Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and for me like that was uh, Harrison Ford was the guy and if you think Raiders I think came out in 81 I might have seen it in London I mean I saw it in London I think that might have been 82 so it was 8 you know my daughter's age now and that was just like a drug it was just like a drug being injected into my idealism if my idealism had an appetite if my idealism was craving something to be addicted to it was this heroic character and Harrison Ford was the guy for me now even at that stage i would have already been maybe consuming a little bit of the the old sort of 40s and 50s hollywood fare and looking at people like spencer tracy and humphrey bogart james stewart james cagney edward g robinson um fred mcmurray whoever like these you know these guys you know classic classic age hollywood leading men who many of whom appeared in noirish movies movies with very sort of murky uh, you know, in in very kind of murky moral milieu, um, who were were walking a very particular line of sort of sardonic survival, um, you know, cynical and jaded, you know, the the post war hangover, um, and not you know, was, you know the the pre war stuff was maybe more conventionally heroic. Um, Clark Gable was probably in the mix there as well. John Wayne and the westerns—I mean, uh, very, yeah. These these men kind of etched in granite, uh, you know, lived large in my imagination. But then, for me, for my generation, you know, the, the the heroes that were actually being pitched to me, because the likes of Bogart et cetera were not being pitched to eight year olds in 1982, but Harrison Ford as either. Han Solo or Indiana Jones was definitely being pitched um, to my age group and you couldn't have found a more willing um, consumer and spectator and audience member than my young self Um, so I was thinking because I was watching watching, um, the latest Batman film is, um, I think it's out there on HBO Max. Uh directed by Matt Reeves, who directed the recent uh, Planet of the Apes movies. Um I think he did this he didn't direct the first of those three movies, he directed the second two, which I think were actually brilliant. Um really worth a look. Incredible, incredible uh, special effects in the the creation of the the apes um sort of i've heard i keep coming across the expression the uncanny valley where i which which is basically a phrase used to describe when you have something depicted on screen that you instinctively know is not real and yet it's so real that it slips into a particular part of our brain where the brain is going hold on how am i actually receiving this because it's brilliant and lifelike but also horrific and unnatural at the same time. And the, the, the technology that is now available means the level of verisimilitude is as high as it has ever conceivably been. And so those apes in the Planet of the Ape, ape movies, Planet of the Apes movies uh, of recent years, are just breathtaking in how real they are um, but they're sort of confronting at the same time um, but fantastic motion picture performances by the actors involved um, I'm thinking of Toby Kebble uh, the young well young he's only in his 40s <laughs> anyone younger than me is young um, and Andy Circus. Um, among others now speaking of Andy Serkis who if you don't know that name off the top of your head Andy Serkis is a very good English actor who first came on my radar because he played Gollum in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies and again the technology of motion capture which is fundamentally you, get a, you know a, a human actor to do the movements um and Tech, of the character in question, because the character might be humanoid in in essence only, but the outward appearance might be something animalistic or monstrous or distinctly non-human, and the technology puts the the outward appearance onto the human figure. Um, and Andy Circus has kind of made this almost a, a specialty, um, but has also appeared in other movies in his normal everyday human form so matt reeves who directed those planet of the apes movies just released his batman movie which is called very simply the batman and it features robert pattinson who i was talking about recently enough Uh, i did an episode on distinct uh, distinct selves in movies distinct characters in movies and i focused on robert pattinson in the um Safdie brothers movie good time and robert pattinson of course really came to prominence in the the twilight kind of tweeny vampire movies um from just over 10 years ago i think the first one came out 2009 2010 but has established himself as a very very uh interesting and kind of brilliant um, character actor and he's taken on a lot of interesting roles but he is the new Batman and that is a three hour long movie Um, but really brilliantly done and returning the Batman character to his to his kind of origins um, as being just a a normal guy who is trying to fight crime and trying to be an effective uh, detective operating outside but um, you know in conjunction with the law and particularly James Gordon and it draws heavily on Frank Miller graphic novel year one which is probably again 20 or 30 years probably 30 years old which really showed the you know Bruce Wayne the the, you know the, 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 the brilliant uh Bruce Wayne I don't I don't need to use the word brilliant but Bruce Wayne is the 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 alter ego of Batman the the orphaned millionaire um who decides to act out all his rage and his desire for justice in the guise of the Batman um but anyway whatever about the movie the movie is well worth looking at Uh, if you didn't see it in the cinema go and check it out um Again, very noirish, very evocative of David Fincher's Seven. Um, a lot of rain, a lot of darkness, uh, but grounded in this very human um, depiction of Batman by Robert Pattinson. Um, and I found myself just thinking after watching it, it's like, you know, so here I am, um, I'm 48, and I'm still more than happy. To sit down and watch uh, a superhero movie, basically, is is what it is. And I don't watch every superhero movie that comes out. Like many people, I've reached a certain saturation point with a lot of the, the Marvel superhero movies. Um, and there's something about the the tone of those Marvel superhero movies, which is... It's just wearing um, to me. Uh, They're they're just a little bit too clever, clever, and a bit too postmodern at times, and a bit too glib, and a bit too arch, um, and poptastic. And I've watched quite a few of them, and I've enjoyed quite a few of them, but there's only so much of that you can take. And then Batman is kind of the antidote to that because Batman's legacy um particularly particularly really since um Frank Miller kind of redefined what Batman could be with his graphic novels of the late eighties and early nineties where he just brought a much grittier, much more noirish um iteration of Batman to to, to life and showed like a different path which was very far away from the you know the 60s tv show with um, Adam West and Burt Ward which was kind of very camp and brightly lit Um, and then even when Tim Burton did the first Batman movie in 1989 with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson even that had this sort of the pop sensibility even though it was a great statement of Burton's vision which always kind of had that uh, quirky gothic aesthetic if you think of something like Edward Scissorhands and other of his movies. Um, And I remember when the Batman came out again, so 89, if I saw it then, it was um, 15. And it was a massive event and it had the Prince soundtrack and Jack Nicholson as the Joker was a very big deal. Um, And again, aesthetically, there were some really nice things about it and there was something tonally that seemed to be just kind of darker and more psychologically sophisticated than anything the TV series had promised and earlier iterations of of Batman from the comic books, which go back to the 40s, basically. So you're talking about like an 80-year-old um, creation at this stage, but... The question that I was asking myself is again as a man in his late forties, what is the attraction still to this world, to this and you know specifically I suppose to the, the character of of Batman. Um because I'm not a fanboy, I'm not a comic nerd, uh even though I was, I, I was I was big into um you know, Marvel comics in my teens, um, my sort of early to mid-teens, and um, more into Marvel, really, than, than um, you know, DC. So DC and Marvel were the two big comic um, powers, and DC gave us, you know, Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and, you know, other characters like this. And then Marvel was Spider Man and Captain America and the Incredible Hulk and Thor and the Avengers and the Defenders and X Men and um, Marvel came at a later stage of comic book evolution and addressed more contemporary issues and the, many of the characters were were humans who um, through you know, various kind of misadventures or bad luck or good luck, you know, became superheroes and then had to kind of decide how to, to to live with the power they'd been given. Um and they you know Marvel always felt a bit more in tune with the times and so in a way it wasn't that surprising that you know Marvel, you know, after a few attempts finally got the tone right to make this you know massive sort of you know output of superhero movies you know, over the last 14 years i think there's like 22 or 23 marvel movies and counting and plenty more to come and tv show spin-offs and for many people it's kind of been the the death of cinema because everything seems to want to follow this model of massive blockbuster um you know superhero um you know this kind of superhero iteration everything has to be on that scale um and it's it's not it, you know it's it's leaving no room for anything else because as ever um in hollywood certainly the they only want the winning formula and as long as that's a winning formula and people are making buckets of money that's all they're interested in putting their money into so if you get something like matt reeves matt reeves's the batman it's kind of an antidote to that because it goes down a very different road um much more grounded much darker much grittier um and much more confronting in its way um but yeah i digress for the umpteenth time the question is why am i still attracted to that stuff what is the attraction of hero stories? And this is where I'm bringing my daughter into this now because I was thinking about disappointment. And my daughter had a friend over at the weekend. the friend stayed for a sleepover and had great fun and the friend went home the next day and after she went home my daughter was quite upset and just felt really kind of sad that you know the fun was over and really kind of took it to heart for a while and you know it's also kind of lamenting the end of the weekend and she was probably a bit overtired and she shed a few tears and I just kind of you know cajoled her around (laughs) and finally kind of you know helped her get back you know recover her 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 good mood but it got me thinking about you know how, how we kind of cope with disappointment and i mean you know you could argue that that's not disappointment that that's that's a sort of form of grief that the good thing is over the good thing is past and of course You know, who among us doesn't recognize that feeling that, you know, if you're still out there in the working world or you recall your school days, that kind of Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening feeling like, oh, crap. Back to work tomorrow, back to school tomorrow, back to the grind, back to that place where I'm not free. (laughs) And that was a feeling that would often come at the end of the summer holidays. That would come at the end of the Christmas break. That would come at, you know so many places you know family from overseas come to visit and they have to go back home and so many different scenarios where it's the end of the experience and there's a sort of a uh, a micro grief that we have to process um and i suppose i got to thinking about well you know what what's so bad about what you have what's so you know that that the the departure of these other elements whether it's the end of a festival period where whether where you know whether it's the end of the weekend the end of the holidays whether it's the end of a friend uh being to visit or the end of 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 family extended family being to visit what leaves your world looking so pallid and gray and insipid and cold and desolate (laughs) When when that when that time comes to an end um, uh, and this, you know, this is the area I was thinking around um, and I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to dwell on on my own childhood at this particular moment. Um, but I, I was really sort of having a moment of recognition, you know, with, with my daughter and understanding like, oh, yeah, I remember that feeling really well. Just the, the bitter kind of sadness of, oh, crap, the fun's over. Um, and what's next? You know, when when are the fun times coming back again? Um, and then, you know, that, you know the, 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 the link I'm trying to make here then is, is that where heroes step in? I mean and and let me just be very quick here to clarify I don't think of the world in terms of heroes and villains and I think the idea of you know as a as a as a grown up as an adult the idea of having a hero um is kind of embarrassing and juvenile and I mean I've, I've been using that word juvenile a bit lately in my dismissal of cancel culture and the less savoury, less thoughtful aspects of woke politics and woke culture. um, But the idea of having a hero, um, yeah, as I say, it seems, it seems juvenile. It seems to be rooted in something childish. It's, um, it's got an infantilizing aspect to it and i suppose when you talk about sort of fanboy culture or nerd culture there there is a there's definitely there's definitely an aspect of that culture that can have that criticism leveled at it that it's all it's all sort of arrested development it's all permanent you know perpetual adolescence and gaming culture um perhaps is you know falls into that territory as well role play and i don't know what i mean and again so i'm not again not having any great investment in those um worlds or subcultures or societies or communities i'm not here to to slag people off or dismiss them i'll save that for when i'm you know off the air (laughs) judgment guns fully loaded and at the ready as always um no i mean i it's 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 i'm not trying to again this marriage this this marriage this this marriage is better than that marriage and this marriage has been going on a long time and that marriage hasn't so don't talk to me about this marriage until that marriage is caught up with this marriage i don't want to disparage you know I don't, i'm not here to disparage anyone for god's sake you know well within reason um but again the idea of having a hero as an adult i don't know i mean i think i mean this is this is you know this is where my, my thoughts have been sort of uh you know circulating percolating um ruminating I mean as a as a wellness idea, the idea of a hero suggests that maybe we're we're always looking for we're always looking to be saved or we're looking for someone else to be our protector, someone else to be that stand against you know evil forces. And that is an infantilizing idea. Because ultimately, we want to take that role ourselves. And we want to be our own protector. And we want to be the one who has the wherewithal to repel negative forces evil forces. And again, again, you've, you've, you know, I hope you can hear, of course I'm not talking about evil in conventional, traditional hero-villain terms, but let's put it into a wellness paradigm of things that are unhelpful and unhealthy for me, things that impact my sense of self-worth, the things that are obstacles to my self-care, And how am I going to deal with those? And then, you know, we can go back and go, well, you know, what what do I model my optimum behavior on? So do I go to my cupboard, my wardrobe, and pull out a Superman costume or a Captain America costume or... An incredible Hulk costume would probably probably be one of the cheapest because I just need a torn pair of purple shorts. Um a Batman costume and do I put on that, you know, do I put on a cape and a cowl. Is that a, that's a great one, isn't it? The Batman cowl. Nice little word, C O W L, cuz that's the the horned <laughs> the <laughs> The horned helmet. Jesus, I love a horned helmet. I would love, and I mean love, a horned helmet right now. That's the cowl. What Batman, what Bruce Wayne puts on his head. Um, Can't call it a mask. It's not a hood. (laughs) And it's not horned either, by the way. Okay, smarty pants. Their ears. They're not horns, they're little bat ears, yeah? Because bats are bloody blind and they need ears to negotiate the world. These use their little sonic vibrations, don't they? We all know that. Come on, come on, animal lovers, lovers of bats. You know that, I know that, we know that. Um. So I was asking the question, you know, who do we model our optimum behavior on? And see, this is where I'm asking the question, are we attracted to fictional heroes because of the the dearth, the complete absence of real-life heroes? I mean, heroes are idealized creations. Now, again, to throw back to the Marvel comic book creations, a lot of those heroes were very flawed. And in their heroic... um their 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 heroic selves they'd live out heroic actions once they were in costume and fighting villains and you know doing heroic deeds but in their private human lives they were often very flawed characters struggling with very mundane things i mean and peter parker spider man's alter ego peter parker was probably the epitome of that you know peter parker going Damn it, you know, I didn't get a chance to wash my Spider-Man suit and it stinks. And I've got to go out and fight Craven the Hunter or um, you know, the Sandman or the Vulture or Doctor Octopus and my Spider-Man suit is still wet and a bit stinky because I didn't have a chance to to wash it properly and it hasn't dried yet. Um <laughs> uh, Peter Parker going, "Damn, I haven't I haven't managed to pay the rent this month." Um, because I didn't take enough photos for uh, you know J Jonah Jameson the editor of the newspaper where he works um, you know Peter Parker in trouble because he had to miss a date with his girlfriend and she wants to kill him so all of that sort of relatability uh, of the Marvel heroes was part of their enormous appeal um, Ben Grimm's The Thing from the Fantastic Four the sort of the, the the man who turned into a, a, a basically a monstrous figure made of orange bricks and he was obsessed with the loss of his humanity and he fell in love with a blind woman because she couldn't see how ugly he was and he was he was tortured with self-doubt and self-loathing um, and in one of his storylines he ended up uh, as part of this kind of super force of uh, superheroes fighting together against um, you know, uh, uh, you know, intergalactic uh, forces who were trying to destroy planet Earth and all these superheroes left Earth to fight wars in outer space and when the thing went to outer space on one of the planets he ended up on he realised he could he was able to be a human again so he didn't want to go back to Earth because he loved being human and he fell in love with someone there as well so i mean like this is (laughs) these were the stories so like the thing i i loved that character because he was he always in spite of him being one of the most powerful characters in the marvel universe uh, as strong as the hulk um he always had this vulnerability um around you know who's going to love me um because i'm hideous Uh, which is it's so it's such a you know it's such a profoundly adolescent concern and you know let's forget about being an adolescent it's such a profoundly human concern am i lovable is you know who's going to take me who's going to care for me who's going to tell me that i'm worthy of love um and of of romantic love and so again like as a consumer of hero stories, do we, did I, do I still, do I still enjoy hero stories because the world, the world is populated with imperfect people and there are no heroes, there are no perfect people Um, and I'm not challenged by that. I mean, it's like, it's like, of course not, of course not and yet, The enjoyment of watching a a movie like the Batman is to to see someone who is remorselessly moral and remorselessly driven by their conviction that you know this is the right thing to do and in the in the world of Batman and particularly in the movie iterations of the last um, you know the last 15 years or so um, and you know the batman exists in a world that is morally completely bankrupt and everywhere there is corruption everywhere there is social and political failing um and sort of human degradation and broken people and broken souls and you know Batman is this sort of grim figure who is is you know fighting against the tide of the the dissolution of the human spirit and human soul and human optimism and positivity and he's like we're all in this stink this morass together and it's overwhelming um, and the choice is there to give up and be beaten but i ain't gonna and you see maybe that's the germ of it all the the i'm not going to be the one who gives up i'm going to keep fighting and i mean i've spoken before go back a few episodes and you'll find an episode i did on defiance as a tool of wellness um i'm a big believer in that that idea that you're not going to let life beats you down life is, is you know it is you know life is tough life is challenging it's been particularly challenging in the years of the pandemic um, it's particularly it is particularly challenging at this time of growing wealth inequality um, you know so many different reasons and there's so many different reasons that life can be extremely confronting and it can wear on you and break you down and erode your sense of what's possible and i believe one of the answers is to engage with uh, a very strong personal defiance that says no i'm not going to i'm not going to bow i'm not going to yield i might bend but i won't break and maybe that's maybe that's the appeal of a certain type of hero and again you know returning to my own relationship you know as a child to some of this uh another another phrase that's bandied around now the uh the the intellectual property my relationship to the the ip of of star wars in particular um and that moment of <laughs> intense emotion at the concert last week um which as i say reverted me to um my childhood state of awe and adulation um and and romance really and there's a lot of romance i think in believing in um, in heroic types and heroic characters and heroic arcs um and i hope i suppose that you know if 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 you accept this theory that fictional heroes are more and more attractive to people who feel i don't have those role models in my in my life um i mean there's a there's something there's something sad about that as well and i think i think sort of socially maybe philosophically psych- psychologically it's very it's very healthy and very life affirming to, you know, to look around, to look around at people, you know, to look around at people in your in your life and to not to try to elevate them to, as I said, this kind of infantilizing idea of heroism, but actually stop and step back and go. What does that person actually, what have they had to cope with? And what have they had to survive to get to this place and still have their humanity intact? Um, What have they had to endure or suffer or get through or get over and still be here putting their best foot forward? To still be here engaging with life with an open heart See, I can't help but think of that as a form of heroism. Um, now I, you know, I, know, you know, I hear myself say that, and maybe that sounds a bit wet and a bit over the top, but that's kind of how I conceive of it to and you know, and, and it does lend itself to that idea of defiance to go, "No, I'm still here, and I'm still doing it." I'm not going away. And I accept the challenge. And that is a form of heroism. I mean, maybe the word heroism should be just should just be retired. And it's overused maybe in popular culture and it's overused in maybe tabloid culture and sensationalist culture and in this over-simplification of how we understand people and good acts or selfless acts or altruistic acts Um, you know people are complex and people are capable of great doing great things and lovely things and capable of being obnoxious you know that can all all be contained in the same person Um, so trying to put that heroism frame on top of acts is not necessarily the thing I like the idea of heroism as a hallmark of of survival and willingness to engage and on that note i will say goodbye and i will disengage so thank you so much for listening as always you can find me on social media if that's your thing the clear out 2 is on twitter the clear out podcast is on instagram facebook youtube And you can email me at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. You can use the supporter link wherever you're listening to this to throw some financial support the way of the podcast, if you like. Or if you want to become a regular contributor to the podcast, you can use the Patreon link. That's patreon.com forward slash theclearout. All good. Stay safe. Stay well. Don't be a hero. (laughs) Or do. Hey, live your life. You do you. I'll talk to you real soon. See you next week. All the rest, mind yourselves. Bye bye. Cheers.